Hey, everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I'm so thankful. I was thinking about this. I've taken this for granted so many years, but I'm, I'm determined not to take it for granted ever again, um, that I'm at a stage in my life uh, where I can still celebrate with all of the mothers in my life, except for my, my granny and my grandmother who've gone home to be with the Lord. Um, but my mom uh, is here, and I can celebrate with her. My mother-in-law, my dad has always said, whenever he was preaching, he said he, he could never tell mother-in-law jokes because of how wonderful his mother-in-law was, um, and I join him in that. I'm very blessed with a wonderful mother-in-law. I'm so thankful to be able to, uh, to, to have her here locally and celebrate with her. My, mom, my, my, my wife is one of the greatest moms you will ever meet. I'm so thrilled that she is in my life and I can celebrate um, with her as well. But I do want to speak to those in the room where you're having a rough Mother's Day because um, maybe that's not the case for you. And you don't get to celebrate one-on-one with somebody that you very much would love to celebrate with. Maybe it's because your mom has gone home to be with the Lord, or it could be. There are many moms in this room who... Um, your child has gone home to be with the Lord. And that's part of living in a broken world. It's just not fair. This is what sin does to our world. It makes it very much not fair. It's not how God wanted it to be for a parent to bury their child. It's just not right. Um, And yet the Lord is with us, we know, as we walk through that season. But I was thinking about that uh, because some Mother's Days ago, this was probably, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, No, it would have had to have been a little longer than that. I was uh, sitting in my dad's office with my granny and my grandpa, Um, during a Saturday night service here at New Spring. It was at a time when my grandpa's health was declining so much that he wanted to come to Saturday night church, but he couldn't always make it into this room. Uh, So sometimes he would be in my dad's office and my granny would be there with him if, if that was the case. And and my dad was preaching, but it was Mother's Day, and I stopped in. It was night before Mother's Day. I stopped in the office, sat down with him for a few minutes. There's a screen in that office that shows what's going on in here in the worship center so we could hear what dad was saying. And dad was talking about the tradition of the color of the rose. Now, some of you will remember this, that often uh, people would wear a, a rose. Men would wear a, a boutonniere on Mother's Day, and uh, they would wear one color rose if their mother was still living and one color rose if their mom had passed away. And it dawned on me, I thought, you know, this has got to be tough for my granny. Uh, many of you know, uh, my dad's mom uh, lost her firstborn son at the age of four of a brain tumor. And I thought, that's got to be really tough on Mother's Day. And so I said, Granny, I bet Mother's Day is really, really hard for you because of Roger's passing. And, um, and she said, well, it can be. She said, but I tend to look at it this way. She said, um, your dad is here and Roger's in heaven. I figure I never have to spend another Mother's Day without at least one of my sons. I thought, what a special thought. See, the thing is, if if we believe in Christ, the good news is when we've been separated from a family member, you've been separated from your mom, or you're a mom who's been separated from your child, I want you to know that's not the end of the story. There is a season of separation, but a reunion is coming. And in the meantime, we're praying for you as you go through this Mother's Day. Um, separation is hard, but again, there's, there's a reunion story coming, and we celebrate that with you. I, I do want to take a minute and do something that is just remarkably unfair. Um, I've never spoken on Mother's Day before, 16 years of speaking on, on weekends, and I've never spoken.
spoken on Mother's Day before, so I've never had an opportunity to just blatantly use the opportunity to honor my own mom. And I know it's not fair, because you would like to come up here and honor your mom, but I'm the one who's up here. So <laughs> I'm gonna take a moment and honor my mom. And I do it for a couple reasons. Actually, I wanna show you really quickly the number one verse that, that I heard from my parents growing up. There was a lot, I constantly heard scripture from my parents. They were constantly instilling that in my life. But there was one verse that I heard from my parents more than any other verse in the scripture, and it's in Ephesians, and it says, children. <laughs> obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Now, my parents quoted it to me in the King James. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. I can, I can rattle that off pretty quick because I heard it a lot of times. Now, first part of this verse is written to children who are living at home, but then it broadens out into all of us. And it says this, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, uh, your, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Well, I want things to go well for me and I'd like to have a long life on the earth. Those are two good reasons to honor my mother. But the other reason I'd like to honor my mother briefly at the beginning of this talk is that my mother is an honorable person. Um, and I want you to know why I want to honor her this morning. The first reason is because my mom showed me what it really means to love your spouse. See, the thing is, we learn so much about what love is from our parents. Now, sometimes we don't learn the best things and we have to relearn it, but I didn't have to go through that. I, I really learned well from my parents. My mom, I never heard my mom talk my dad down to anybody, not ever, not to us as kids, not to friends, not to church members. I never saw my mom talk my dad down to my dad. My mom will always talk my dad up. Now, my dad's a wonderful person, but he's imperfect, as are you and I. But if you want to learn what my dad's imperfections are, don't think you'll learn it by hanging out with my mom, because she'll never tell you. You'll never hear that from her. And I watched my mom love my dad sacrificially and support him and, and basically do things behind the scenes that no one will ever know about. And, and let me take a moment and just say, my dad and I have fairly visible ministries. And, and you will see my mom, Mary Alice, and you see my wife, Wendy, around here, but their ministries are not as visible as my dad's or mine. But you should know, my dad's ministry would not be possible without my mom, and my ministry would not be possible without Wendy. There is so much that are, so, much, so many factors that are crucial about our ministries that Wendy and Mary Alice are holding up to make sure that they're in place. And we will never, my dad and I will never the side of heaven be able to pay our wives the debt of gratitude that, that, that they are owed for what they have done. They've served New Spring in ways that you will never know and they never expected thanks for it. But I'll tell you what, they are incredible women and I'm so thankful to honor them this morning for the contribution that they've made. Second thing is, my mom took care of me. Isn't it true that nobody can take care of you like your mom? You know, I, um, I got chicken pox when I was 16. I got it from my little three-year-old brother who now speaks up here all the time. You see Stephen up here. So I, I've mostly forgiven him. I've, I've mostly worked my way through that tunnel of forgiveness. Um, you know, he had this slight little case of chicken pox, you know, and I got what my doctor told me. And my doctor was, uh, who, who, the person who was my doctor at the time was actually attending the four o'clock service last night. And I was thinking about that when I went to see him because he said, this is one of the worst cases of chicken pox I've seen in a teenager or young adult. And I was, I really was in bad shape. They, they thought about putting me in the hospital, but I ended up staying at home. Um, but, and I was not, people talk about itching with chicken pox and I did have some itching, but I was mostly dealing with pain. Some people with chicken pox, just more they deal with pain and that's what I had. 
Um, and so I could not sleep at night. And you know, this is like a two-week journey at minimum, and I'm just not getting any sleep, and I'm starting to go a little nuts, right? And I remember my mom staying up all night with me. I'm 16 years old. She stayed up all night with me and watched an all-night marathon of the Dick Van Dyke show. They were running on Nick at Night at the time, right? (laughs) Not because that was fun for her, but because there's something in a mom's heart that says, I can't sleep when my kid is not sleeping and he's not doing all right. My mom took care of me. I want to honor her for that. And then I want to honor her for the fact that she did her best. I want to honor her for something she tried to do. She tried to teach me self-discipline. She gave it her best shot, and as Paul said, brethren, I have not attained it. I haven't gotten there. I'm not a self-disciplined person, but if I ever become a self-disciplined person, it will be because of the efforts that my mom started and that my wife continues to try to just chip away at. We're gonna get him there. We're gonna get him there. Eventually, we're gonna get him there. But the most important thing I wanna say to you about my mom, and the reason I wanna honor her this morning is because she modeled genuine, consistent faith. I saw my mother in her Bible every day I listened to her pray for me and for my brothers. I heard her lead people to the Lord at church, not because that was a task for a pastor's wife to do, but because she genuinely believed people should be leading people to the Lord. Um, And I watched her live out her faith. You know, one of the things that I thought was normal as a pastor's kid, and pastor's kids were an interesting group. I was, in a, I was on a, a floor of mostly pastor's kids my first year at Bible college, and it's amazing we didn't blow up the building. You have to watch pastor's kids. You have to watch them every minute, you know? But when I was hanging out with them, I found out that my experience isn't normal. My experience was that my mom and dad were at home what they were at church. I didn't see anything different. When my mom and dad were at home, they, I, I never heard my parents use bad language. I never heard my parents, like there were the standards that my parents had at church were the same standards that my parents had at home. I thought that's the way it was for everybody. And I started hanging around other pastor's kids as a college student and found out that's not always the case. Fortunately, sometimes it is, but often it's not. So I wanna honor my mom for being who she was at home, who she was at church. She was that lady at home. She still is. She still is, she's the real deal. And that sort of segments me into what I wanna talk about in the talk today, which is the power of a godly mom, because godly moms have power. I believe, and I know our, our, our culture has sort of a, a de-emphasis on specific parental roles, and there's reasons for that that we could discuss on another day, but I believe there is a role that only a mom can play and a role that only a dad can play. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're a single parent, something is irrevocably, irrevocably broken for your kid, um, but what I do mean here is that nobody is expendable. Some dads think it's okay for me to check out because mom can do everything. No, mom can't do everything. And some moms think, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm not really valuable, I'm not good enough. Their dad is the one who's taking the lead here. Ultimately, we have to take the lead together. Moms and dads have to take the lead together and we need to know that both of our roles are very, very important. But there's something very special about a mom's role. I don't know what it is, but there's something very uniquely special about a mom's role. And a godly mom has influence. And I wanna make the point in this message, and I think I will get there by the end of our talk, that a godly mom can change the world. And I wanna, I wanna get there by talking about a story. I know that for the Revelation series, for the Clash series, many of you have been bringing your Bibles. I love to see that. If you would like to be in Scripture where we're going to be today, 2 Kings 4 is where you might wanna turn to if you have your Bible or your electronic reading device. We're gonna be there almost the entire talk, uh, again, in 2 Kings 4. And just to kind of give you a little prep for where we're at, we're, we're, we're t- the, the Scripture here is talking about the people of Israel. Um, there were two 
ministry jobs a person might have at this time. They might be a priest, that's one ministry job, and a priest's job is to represent the people to God. People would, so you were sort of this individual connection between individuals and God. The prophet had a more aggregated job. The prophet's job was to, was to communicate God's message to the people at large. So instead of dealing with individual connections between people and God, you were sort of taking God's message and broadcasting that out, right? That was the prophet's job. And it wasn't always a popular job. And the kings were usually talking about Elisha or Elijah. And those guys had to say some very unpopular things. And by the way, God is still in the business of saying very unpopular things. Because when you're in a broken world, you have two choices. You can either embrace the person who designed the world, admit the fact that the world is broken, and understand that living according to the design of the designer is the way that we should go, or you can begin to embrace the brokenness of the world, normalize it, accept it, try to accommodate it, and then at which point we, we walk away from God, and when a culture begins to walk away from God, then the prophet's gonna have to give some pretty unpopular messages, and that's kind of what was happening. So anyhow, the other thing about being a prophet is you weren't necessarily very well off. You didn't have a lot of resources necessarily, and so you were very dependent on the kindness of people to whom you were ministering. There always needed to be somebody who would take you in and give you a place to stay and give you a meal because you didn't exactly have the ability to constantly take care of your, yourself. And so one thing in Elisha is who we're gonna be talking about today. Elisha had, uh, I think, a special affinity for being in a town called Shunem because whenever he was in Shunem, there was this wealthy couple. Uh, they had no kids, but uh, um, a wealthy uh, husband and wife who would always take him in, take such good care of him. They would give him meals and give him a nice place to stay. And I think it was probably the best he was ever taken care of. I think he always looked forward to going through Shunem. But they, th this couple in Shunem wanted to kick it up a notch. They said, well, what, what can we do for Elisha? He's here a lot and we, we want to, you know, he's, he's a man of God. We want to do something special for him. So she uh, gave her husband a project. She said, why don't we build an apartment on top of the roof just for Elisha, just his own special place? Well, and because ladies know that guys don't know how to furnish anything. He, he, she even said, make sure there's a lamp, make sure there's a bed, make sure there's a table. Like it's in the scripture. She's given him the shopping list for what needs to be in this apartment, right? And they do, they build this apartment for Elisha so that whenever he's coming through, they can take care of him. And he literally has his own apartment to stay in. It's probably the best accommodations Elisha had in his entire ministry. And I think he was so grateful. He wanted to do something for her. So, he, but the problem is, you know how at Christmas they have those commercials, what do you get for the man who has everything? What do you get for the woman who has everything? I think this is his problem. He didn't have a lot of resources. And here's a woman who has it all. What do you, what do you give her to show her uh, kindness in return? And he said, well, maybe, maybe I can do something in terms of relationships. He said, you know, can I put in a good word for you with the king? Can I put a good word in for you with the commander of the army? She said, no, I don't need that. And he's really stumped. And Elisha one day is talking to his servant, Gehazi. He said, Gehazi, we gotta be able to do something for her. What, what can we do for her? There's gotta be something. And Gehazi said, well, I know she's always wanted kids, but she's never been able to have kids. And he specifically mentioned she's got an old husband and they've pretty much given up on this. They've said, well, we're just not gonna have kids. And Elisha said, well, we can do something about that. So Elisha called her in and said, hey, I have a word from the Lord for you. Within a year's time, you're gonna be holding a son. And I mean, can you imagine getting that announcement? I mean, a pregnancy test is enough of a surprise if you weren't expecting something, but to get the forecast, hey, you're gonna have a baby within a year, especially when you were figuring it wasn't gonna happen. Um, and it came, it, it happened. She became pregnant really soon thereafter and she had a son. By the way, when Elisha told her she was gonna have a son, she said, don't tease me. 
I mean, that's not exactly what it says in Hebrew. What it says is, don't lie to me, don't get my hopes up. But she's basically saying, don't mess with me. And he said, no, it's, it's really gonna happen, and it did. Can you imagine what kind of a, a golden season it was for her to have this kiddo that she never thought she would have? I mean, what a special thing it was, probably for her and for her husband. Um, but one of the things about having a child, and maybe I'm the only one who's experienced this, so perhaps I'll find out that this is just me, but it's been my experience that generally it is about that moment that you hold the baby in the hospital, you hold the baby in your arms, that you realize you have gotten yourself in over your head. <laughs> and you realize this is bigger than me. I gotta, I, I'm, I'm, and, and it, the, the longer you parent, and sometimes I think we think the, the older they get, the more they'll have, you know, um, the more they won't need me, and the more you realize the older they get, it's just something new that you realize, I'm in over my head, I'm in over my head, I'm in over my head. And this is a mom who found herself in over her head in a, in a crisis. This is, this is in uh, verse 18 of chapter four. One day when her child was older, and we think, some Bible scholars say 11 or 12 at the oldest, but probably younger, he went out to help his father who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, my head hurts, my head hurts. And his father said to one of his servants, carry him home to his mother. Not a whole lot has changed. <laughs> mom knows where the Tylenol is, go see mom, she'll take care of you. Um, by the way, we think he wasn't doing well from the beginning because again, he was, he was probably absolutely not older than 11 or 12, but probably a little younger. But to say carry him home to his mother, we think perhaps, perhaps it was heat stroke, perhaps it was a stroke, we don't know, but it, he's already not doing well, that's clear. So the servant took him home and his mother held him on her lap. Do you know what it is as a parent, and moms especially, do you know what it is as a parent to just go, I, don't, I do not know what to do for my kid except for to try to be there for them right now. Got, I got nothing else. Like I'm, I'm out of other options, the best thing I know is just to try to be there for him, that's what she's doing. But that didn't work. Around noontime, he died. Now, this is where she starts doing something weird. Just, just to, to break the story here for a second. In this time in the ancient culture, what you would do if you had a family member who died, the first thing you would do is you would gather everybody in. So her, her husband and the workers are in the field. The first thing you would do is bring them all in the house. And then um, the next thing you would do is, is bury the loved one. They did not embalm in this culture. And so you would bury your loved one within 24 hours, unless it was the Sabbath, which you will see in a second. It was not. Um, but if it was the Sabbath, it would get put off for a day or so. But elsewise, I mean, it was very quick. The process of burial was very quick. So to not tell anybody and to take her child, carry him up. And the, and the Bible says she carried him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and then shut the door and left him there. That's weird. That is not what you would do. By the way, the, the apartment of the prophet was most likely just, you know, dark and unattended whenever Elisha wasn't there. It was probably a part of the house nobody ever went to, partially out of respect for the prophet. Like Bible scholars tell us, probably nobody would go in there when the prophet wasn't there, partially because they didn't need to and partially because they wanted to respect it as the prophet's space. She goes into the prophet's space, sets the little boy down on the bed and shuts the door behind her. And then she sent a message to her husband, not to say that the child is dead. She says, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God, that would be Elisha, and come right back. Well, her husband's a little confused. He says, why go today? It's neither a new moon festival nor a Sabbath, but she said it will be all right. Now, why is he talking about this new moon business? Well, the thing about it is prophets would teach at certain times 
And it was appropriate to journey to where the prophet was to hear him teach at certain times, new moon, Sabbath, those would have been times where that would have been appropriate. And in that culture, it would have been considered kind of inappropriate to just pop in on the prophet, just show up for no, uh, no reason. And so her husband's going, I'm not sure it's okay for you to go like this, but she's saying, no, it will be fine. Thank God for mothers who understand it was all, it's always fine to seek out God when you're in a crisis with your kids. Always, 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 without exception, you can talk to God about your kids when you're leaving the pickup line after you drop your kid in school. You can talk to God about your kids when you're at work and you just can't get it off your mind and you can take a minute and talk to God about it. Even though others might think, well, no, you, you interface with God at church about your kids. Uh, a godly mom knows I interface with God about my kids all the time, whenever I need, whenever there's a crisis, whenever I'm struggling, whenever there's a challenge, I can always go to God. And this is what this mom understood. She said, I can, I can do this, it will be all right. So she saddled the donkey and said to the servant, hurry, don't slow down unless I tell you to. And she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel. Elisha saw her in the distance and he said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her three questions. Is everything all right with you, with your husband and with your child? This isn't my sermon today. This is a free sermon. This is an extra sermon. This is a bonus sermon. <laughs> but these three questions are a really great health checkup for your family. Really, really great health checkup for your family. Notice that he starts the question with, is it okay with you? You know, your family can only be as healthy as the least healthy person. And sometimes the least healthy person is the person who's trying to make everybody else as healthy as they possibly can be. What I mean by that, and I, I looked for this resource in my office, I couldn't find it, but eight or, eight or nine years ago, I was working on a writing project and I found a manual for medics for World War II. Interesting book. In that book, it talked about how medics in the battlefield should check themselves over every 30 minutes at least to see if they were wounded because the military had learned at that point that it was not uncommon for a medic to get wounded and not realize that they were wounded because they were so busy tending to the wounds of other soldiers. And by the time they realized they were wounded, it was too late. There's a reason why Elisha said, is it okay with you? Because moms especially can be so busy tending to the needs of the family that there can be the battle scars of just dealing with the, the challenges of being a mom that just go unnoticed. And over time, they can start to really add up. And there's a, there's a point here to be made that sometimes we need, to take, we, we need to stop and take stock of how am I doing? Wait, I need to pause this for a second. I'm always thinking about how my family members are doing, but I need to stop for a second and say, how am I doing? Not because I'm selfish. You know, when I travel and I talk to people about self-awareness, I'll have people come up and say, I'm not sure about whether self-awareness is a Christian concept. That sounds more like selfishness to me. Now, there's a huge difference between selfishness and self-awareness. My wife and I went on a cruise about 10 years ago. It was our first and last uh, cruise. <laughs> it's a whole other story for another day, right? But... On that cruise ship, there was this, I guess they call it the bridge where the captain paces back and forth and it was glass so you could see the captain the whole time. And he always had those binoculars looking across the ocean the whole time. That is being ocean aware and we want the captain to be ocean aware. Now, if the captain, on the other hand, was uh, drowning and flailing around outside the boat, that is being ocean absorbed and it's not a particularly good thing, right? So there's a difference between being self-aware, which means I'm paying attention to myself to make sure that I know what my needs are, I know what I need to do to keep growing, I know what some of my weaknesses are that I'm working on, I also know what my strengths are that I need to be leveraging. That is self-awareness. Selfishness is being absorbed in self so much that I cannot think about anyone else. Some folks are so worried about being selfish that they have blocked the path to self-awareness and as a result, they have set themselves up to be so injured that by the time they notice it, they're in real trouble. 
Is it all right with you? And then he said the second thing, is it all right with your husband? Well, now, why doesn't he just skip to the child? Is it all right with you? Is it all right with your child? Is it all right with your husband? Because he understands that marriage is the core of this family. And sometimes I talk to people who tell me, well, you know, we're in that stage right now where we have the kids and everything is really about the kids. And when the kids grow up and they move away from home, then we'll have the time to really focus on the marriage. That's ridiculous. The thing is, if, that, if you do it that way, when those kids do move away from home, you won't know the person that you're in the house with. and You won't have a connection with them. You have to build your marriage primarily for the sake of your kids. Your kids will benefit from the fact that you have a healthy marriage. I can attest to that in my own family growing up. I was benefited by the fact that my mom and dad put their marriage first. That has paid huge dividends in my life. And then he said, is it all right with your child? Now, interestingly enough, now this is again Gehazi. This isn't Elisha. This isn't the man of God. This is the man of God's servant. He's asking these questions. Notice that one of the questions was, how are things with your kid? She doesn't necessarily answer him very truthfully. She says, yes, everything is fine. It's fine. You have somebody in your life. It's fine. It's fine. I don't think that's what she was doing. This is my best guess, because she didn't tell her husband that her son was dead. She didn't tell Gehazi that her son was dead. And, and she's continually pushing toward Elisha. As a matter of fact, this is what I think, and I can't prove it from Scripture. It's not in the text. But I tend to think Gehazi went out to meet her and thought they would stand there and talk for a minute. I don't think she ever stopped moving. I think as he went out there to ask her these questions, she's still making a beeline for Elisha, and he's having to walk in behind her the whole time because she's not stopping. There is something, I think, sometimes that is so deeply felt in the heart of a mom it's so, so much on your heart, so much something that you just can't escape. It's constantly with you. You're constantly thinking about it, but you're not ready to talk to anybody else yet about it but God. There's a private space between you and God right now on it. Some, at some point, you'll be ready to talk to the rest of the world about it, but right now, it's just something that the only person you really know how to talk to about it is with, is with God. That's why I think she was saying, I gotta get to Elisha. Elisha's the guy I gotta talk to. She, when she got there, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. This, in the ancient world, this was a sign that I need your full attention and I'm not letting go of you until you do something. We had a series once called Push, Pray Until Something Happens. Praying until something happens is grasping the feet of Almighty God and saying, God, I need your full attention and I'm not gonna let you go until I see something happen. There's power in a praying mom. Well, Gehazi thought this was inappropriate, and he began to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone, she's deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. And then she said, did I ask you for a son? I mean, she's saying, this was your idea, buddy. I didn't come to you and say, I want a son. Like, you came to me and said this was gonna happen. She said, I told you, don't lie to me, don't get my hopes up. And then there's this son in my life, and now he's been taken away from me. Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel, take my staff and go. And what he's saying is, take my staff and go home with this woman and I will catch up. And the reason for that is Gehazi is young and Elisha, well, he's old. The older I get, the more I realize that older people move slower. I don't move quite as fast as I once did. I think Elisha understood there was, there was a reason to move fast here. And the reason is because, and not, not to be, not to be, anything less than genteel here. I think Elisha knew what the mom knew, which was that if anybody stumbled across the body of this boy, they were gonna bury him, and they weren't ready for that yet. Man, isn't there power in a mom who says, I know that the, 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 general, the general thought here is that there isn't any hope, but I still think there's some hope, and I'm not ready to give up just yet. 
That's what this mom, and, and Elisha's with him, but Elisha's saying Some, something's got to stop the process of what would normally happen. So he tells Gehazi, when you get there, lay the staff on, my child, on the child's face. I don't think this was so that the child would come back to life, although I think Gehazi thought it was, because we kind of see that in the story later. I think what it was, for a person who was older to send their staff ahead and to put it somewhere was an indication that I'm coming there. I'm going to be there. And I think he thought if, if his staff was on this child's face, nobody would mess with the child until, until he got there. The boy's mother said, and again, the, the implication is here, you go ahead with Gehazi. He moves fast, you move fast, I'll get there when I can get there. But the boy's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. She said, I'm not going with Gehazi. Gehazi can run on ahead, but I'm going to go with you. Wow, what a powerful thought. I'm not going to move faster than God moves here. Man, I'm so impatient. I have, I have a, if, if there was a clinical diagnosis for impatience, I would be a perfect example. I just don't have patience. And I so often want God to do things on my terms, on my timeline. But she's saying, God, I'm gonna move at, at your pace. So Elisha returned with her and Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. Again, I think Gehazi thought he was gonna do this and, and it didn't happen. So he returned to meet Elisha and told him, the child is still dead. And when Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. Then he lay down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. And as he stretched out on him, the child's body began to grow warm again. Elisha got up, paced back and forth across the room, and then stretched himself out again on the child. And this time the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Can't explain the sneezing. I think it's just, I think the Bible wants us to know, you know, dead people don't sneeze. Um, seven is the number of perfection, so that makes sense, or the number of completion. He opened his eyes, and Elisha summoned Gehazi, called the child's mother. Now, this is weird, because in this male-dominant culture, to have this amazing miracle happen, we would have expected the prophet to say, call for who? Call for the child's father. But it wasn't the ch child's father who came and got him. It was the child's mother who came and got him. It was the mother's faith who was involved in this. As far as I know, the father was a great guy. But Elisha said, bring her in. And when she came in, Elisha said, here, take your son. And she fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. <clears throat> they carried him in because he wasn't alive. She carried him out because he was. And she said, I'm gonna have a hard time turning loose of this kid because <laughs> I, I have him back. Can we just take a few minutes as we close out our message and just maybe try to draw out a few things that we can use when it comes to the power of a godly mom? The first thing is she believed God could do something for her child. Mom, there will come a point in time when something is going on with your kid and someone will tell you that there's nothing that can be done about that. It just is what it is. One of my least favorite phrases from our culture. I, I do think it's important for us to be able to accept the truth but the idea that it is what it is often is our way of explaining that we don't anticipate God will do anything. It just is what it is. But there's something in a mom's heart that says, if God tells me to accept it, I'll accept it. But until God tells me to accept it, I choose not to accept it. Because I choose to believe that God can do something up until God tells me I've decided in this case not to do something. Up until that point, I'm saying I'm going to reach out to heaven and say, God, I believe you could do something here. She believed that God could do something for her child. Nobody knows, moms in this room, nobody knows what your child's needs are like you do, except for God, and he knows even better than you do. 
there's that conversation, that dialogue that goes between you, who's the human being who knows your child's needs the best, and God, who knows your child's needs even better than you do, this conversation that says, God, I trust that you could still do something here. There may be other people who don't even know what my kid needs. They may not even see this. They may not even experience it, but I'm around enough to see it, and God, I trust you could do something here. Other people might not think anything could be done, but I believe you could do something. There's There's a sense in which she was willing to press pause and insisted on grabbing hold of heaven. I still think it's interesting that she did not move forward with the typical progression of burial and all of that. She said, nope, nope, gonna press pause until I talk to God about this. Not gonna do anything. I'm not, I'm not gonna move until I talk to God about this. I love that idea of her, that, that past, the, the verse where it talks about her grabbing hold of the, of the prophet's ankles. The Hebrew word means to fasten or to latch. She latched onto his ankles and said, I'm not letting go. There's something about the power of a praying mom who will latch onto heaven and say, I am not gonna let go of God on this issue until I see something happen. I'm gonna keep watching it. Until I see something happen, God is gonna know to expect to hear from me until I see something happen. This one is really hard for me. She was unwilling to run ahead of God's help. She said, nope, willing to work at God's speed. Now, let's talk about that for just a second because the distance that we are talking about is roughly 25 miles. So I want you to think about the oldest person that you know and think about going on a journey with them for 25 miles. Now, there was one donkey between the two of them, so that was helpful, but this isn't a 25-mile car ride. This is 25 miles on foot and on donkey with a person who's very old in a situation that you would like to be resolved. I mean, have you ever had a medical test where they tell you we're gonna get back with you in two weeks and you think to yourself, that is gonna be the longest two weeks of my entire life? And it is, every day. You think, my goodness, if they could just get back with me. And you check your email a million times. Maybe they'll get back to me early. Maybe I'll hear back from them early. Can you imagine what it would be like to be this mom and to be slowly moving through this 25-mile journey waiting to get home, knowing as she does that her son is just as dead today as he was yesterday. Nothing has really changed. I don't know who I'm talking to, but there, my hunch is there are a lot of parents in this room, not just mothers, but fathers. There are a lot of parents in this room that are walking your own 25 miles right now. You're in that 25 miles and it doesn't seem to be getting better. You're trusting God, you're asking God for help, but nothing's really changing. You're not really seeing any movement and you know that you're not there yet. That's, that's something you're clear on. I'm in the journey, I know I'm in the journey, but I also know I'm not there yet. Well, there's some challenges of walking your 25 miles. The first one is, God usually moves slower than we think he should. I wish I could have control of God's calendar because I would move some things around. (laughs) And say, God, I I think we should probably work on getting this done by this date, right? And I would just, but the thing about it is, God's timing is perfect, my timing is not. God does the right thing at the right time for the right purpose to get the right results. Faith says, God, even when my spirit doesn't love your timing, my choice in my soul is to trust your timing. I don't love your timing, but I trust your timing. It's hard for me to give it time, and yet I know it's the right thing to do. Second thing is, often the situation doesn't seem to be getting better. Sometimes I think we have a very transactional view of dealing with God. God, if I pray about this today, I should see it change tomorrow. 
uh, if I do the right thing, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna really read my Bible, I'm gonna do my spiritual disciplines, which I always struggle with that term, spiritual disciplines. You know what God wants is intimacy with us. So try that out in your marriage, right? Come home and say, hey, I've not been very good in my marital discipline, so when I come home, I'm gonna talk to you for at least a few minutes when I come home every day and we'll hang out. You know, not because, it's, not because I necessarily wanna get close to you, but because those are my marital disciplines. Give that a shot, see how that goes, right? Um, I tend to think God is not looking for us to check off tasks with him. He's looking for us to get close to him. But maybe I think, all right, I'm gonna check off those tasks, and if I check off those tasks, I'm gonna read my devotional, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna do all these things, and I should see something happen, and then when we don't see something happen, we think God's not being fair to us. Well, God, I did my part. Why didn't you do your part? Remember what I said about God's timing is perfect. Often we don't see anything changing because God is gonna show us the change at the right moment, at the right time, for the right reason, and we'll see the right results. Finally, I think it's because there's so much we don't know yet. I think it would be lovely if God would come down from heaven and tell me about the rest of Cheyenne and Summer's life. Hey, this is everything that's gonna happen with them. This is where they're, you know, this is um, what their careers are gonna be. This is what the, the guys they're gonna marry. Neither will be good enough, by the way. Uh, they're, these are the guys they're gonna, they're gonna marry, and this is, you know, like, lay it all out for me. I think that would be lovely. But isn't it true that one of the hardest parts of parenting is how much of the story we don't know? We're trying to do our best with limited knowledge. I know what's happened today. I know what's happened in the past, but I don't know what's gonna happen in the future. I'm trying to raise these kids the best way that I can. I think one of the challenges for this mom walking her 25 miles is she doesn't know the end of the story. We have second kings. We've read the end of the story. We know how it ends, but she didn't know how it ended. It's one of the big challenges of walking your 25 miles. But can I also tell you there's some huge blessings in walking your 25 miles? The first one is this. Every step with God gets you a little closer to a miracle. See, she understood. I, I don't have to have the miracle today, I just need to take another step with God because every step with God I take gets me a little bit closer to the miracle that I'm headed toward. There's, there's celebration to be taken in the fact that we're getting closer. I don't have to see it today. I just know that God being with me, we are getting closer. And I can celebrate the fact that we're getting closer. The second thing is my perspective tends to be right if I'm walking with God through these 25 miles. On the one hand, I know I can't fix this, that's humility. On the other hand, I know I'm walking with the person who can fix this, that's hope. We've talked a lot about the definition of faith in different messages, I've talked about that. This is a good definition of faith. Faith is humble hope. I'm humble in that I know who I am and what I am and what my limitations are. I'm completely aware of the fact that I'm human, I am not God, and I have that perspective, that right perspective of who I am and what I am not. On the other hand, I have hope in a God who is everything that I cannot be, and can do all the things that I can't do. And so I am neither discouraged because I don't believe something can happen because I know I'm walking with the God that can make something happen, but nor am I lifted up in pride because I know it won't be me that does it. And so I'm, my perspective tends to be right. And then the last thing is this, I know that I'm not alone. Did you know the Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted? It's as though the Bible goes to special lengths to let us know. When your heart is breaking, that is when you will find that you are closest to God. And there are people who could stand up in this room and give testimony to the fact that the closest they ever felt to the Lord was when they were walking their 25 miles. Well, one more thing. She was willing to let God deal one-on-one -on -one with her child, even if that meant being outside the door. How strange, how strange to walk 25 miles, 25 miles to get to that house and to expect to walk into the room with the prophet only to get there and have the prophet close the door and for her to be staring there at the door like, all right, now I'm on the outside. Some of us are very excited for God to help our kid with something because we anticipate that God will do it through us. 
We're like, God, I've been dealing with this for a long time. So if anything happens, God is gonna change my kid through me. But then when God starts to bring change into, into our kid's life and it doesn't happen through us as a pipeline, we start to get offended. God, do you know how long I've been investing in my kid, but now there's another pipeline that seems to be bringing him close to you? I'm not exactly sure I like that. I thought it was gonna involve me. I thought I was gonna be involved in this. But this is a mom that says, I don't care, God, how you do this. I just want you to do it. I'm okay with standing outside the door. I'm okay with standing inside the door. I'm okay with it no matter how you do it. God, I just want you to do it. I just want you to do something for my kid. And that's especially important if you have a kid today, especially for those moms of adult kids where you would say, my, my child is just doing some stuff I'm really struggling with. A couple years ago, I did a sermon series called Desperado. You can tell I'm a little bit of an Eagles fan. And the series was about loving somebody who's lost their way. And we talked about the, we talked about the prodigal son and we said, isn't it true that when our kids hit rock bottom, the first thing that we wanna do is go rescue them. We wanna bail them out because it hurts our heart to see them hurt. But we also said in that series that isn't it interesting, the prodigal comes to his senses when he hits rock bottom. Sometimes it actually takes that moment of, of hitting a point that's painful and difficult for a person to actually hit a turnaround moment. And sometimes that means we have to stand outside the door while God has a very difficult talk with one of our kids. Bible, C.S. Lewis said that, that um, Sometimes God uses pain as a megaphone, and that's, that's absolutely true. And sometimes we wanna just get in there and say, no, God, don't leave me outside the door. I wanna get in there and bail my kid out. And God says, this is gonna be a difficult chat for me to have with your kid. I think we probably need to close the door. But she said, God, you do it how you do it. And then the final thing is her faith became her legacy. I, I think about that moment as she's carrying that kid down the stairs, knowing this is the future generations of her family that exists because she was willing to say, I'm not giving up just yet. In the minute and 45 seconds I have left, I wanna tell you about a very special lady, my, uh, my grandma Hoover, not my granny Hoover, Edith, who many of you knew before she passed away. Um, and by the way, she was an amazing woman of faith as well, but I'm talking about my great grandma Hoover, my dad's grandma. She had a, a really rough life. She was born into a very dysfunctional family. Her dad abandoned the family when she was quite small. Her mom, who was already emotionally unstable, really, really didn't do well with her dad leaving, and she became very bitter and depressed and um, disconnected from the family. And so my grandma Hoover had to kind of, you, you know these stories where, where a child ends up raising the other kids in the family because mom, you know, in this case, just can't handle the task of being a mom. So you have a child who has to kind of step up, and that was my, gra my great-grandma Hoover. And she took care of her siblings. And then she ended up being a mother very early on. She got married at 16 to my great-grandpa, who was 17 at the time. Um, and it wasn't too long thence that she had her first child, which was my grandpa Hoover. Um, and he was the first, y'all, check this out. He was the first of nine, nine kids. She was a believer, by the way, but the man that she married was not. And for years, she would corral those nine kids on Sunday morning, get them all dressed, get them ready for church, and take them to church by herself while her husband made fun of her for doing it. But I think about a person's faith becoming their legacy. Because see, see, here's the deal. She loved her husband, and it hurt her that she was being made fun of. But her loyalty was first to God. And she said, my kids, they're gonna be my legacy. That was really important to her. And she would take those nine kids to church. Now think about this, a conservative church in South Texas, here comes a mom without the dad, nine kids being corralled into the church. I just think she had to, to have some very thick skin. Personally, I think she had to be a lady with very thick skin. 
That firstborn, by the way, was my, my grandpa, W.M. Hoover, who was pastor of the same church in Fort Worth, Texas for 50 years before he came and served our church uh, as care pastor for over a decade before his retirement and passing. Actually, uh, three of her sons uh, became pastors. Uh, three of her daughters sang in a Christian um, lady singing group. One of her sons became a university professor at a Christian university. Um, she has 23 grandkids, of whom my dad is one. So I want you to think for just a second about 50 years at Fair Park Baptist Church in Fort Worth, the lives that my grandpa touched. That was a result of a, of a godly mom who said, I, I choose to make sure that my kids know the Lord, and I'm not gonna give up on that, even when it's difficult. I'm gonna choose to continue to push for that. But not just all the people whose lives my, my grandpa touched. Think of all the lives my dad has had an had a, a opportunity to influence through his years here. My dad came here in 1985, but he was a pastor a long time before that. But think of all the lives that he's touched through his life. It's a direct result of my great-grandma Hoover. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that, that that's a direct result of her life. I'm one of the great-grandkids. My, my brother Stephen, who you see preaching up here often, is one of the great-grandkids. Uh, by the way, Anita Renfro is one of the grandkids. She's Austin's mom. You see Austin up here leading worship on the, on the weekends. She's also a, a very well-known uh, Christian comedian and musician. Um, Austin is one of the great-grandkids. I'm telling you, my, my dad has said this before, so it's not original to me, but if this thing works like Amway, <laughs> my great-grandma is set. She is set. I say that because there might be a mom in this room who's saying, I'm really trying to hold up my faith for my kids and for my family, but I just don't see anything materializing yet. Well, I would like to encourage you what I think my great grandma would tell you if she could be here today, which is that you often won't see it yet, but it's coming. The power of a godly mom can change the world, it can really change the world. One mom, young mom in South Texas, nobody knew about, she has a role in the fact that this message is being filmed and will go around the world. My great grandma has a huge responsibility in that. I know that some days it can be tough to be a mom. It can be tough to be a dad too, but it can be especially tough to be a mom because it can be like, look at what I'm investing, but I'm not seeing the yield yet. But what does the Bible tell us? That whenever we sow, there will be a harvest. Apostle Paul says, let's not get weary in doing what is good because at the right time, we'll reap a harvest. If what? If we don't give up. If we don't give up. We may be walking our 25 miles, but we're gonna get there. We're gonna see God do something amazing. Let me pray for you. Father, Thank you for everyone who's come this weekend, but especially for the moms in the room. Thank you for the incredible impact that, that they have the power to make. Thank you for their willingness to even be here this morning and to model godly living for their family by being here. Father, once again, for those who are separated by some sort of loss, we pray for your comfort today. For those in this room that are, are wishing very much for a child, but, um, but they just haven't had that, um, that baby in their life yet, Father, I pray that you would give them uh, peace first of all today, and then Father, I pray that if it's your will that you could allow them to experience that, um, and we will give you all the, the glory and credit for that when it happens. Father, once again, thank you for the opportunity to gather today and celebrate motherhood, which is your invention, and once again, we ask that you would dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, moms, don't forget to get a gift on your way out from guest services. Thank you so much. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. 
For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org. 